You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Have you noticed that over the last year, you've had to have difficult conversations more than usual? Conversations about relationships and money and living arrangements and, I don't know, surviving a pandemic. I know I have. And what I've noticed with those conversations is that no one ever really taught me how to have them. I never got a difficult conversation playbook growing up. Well, my guest on the show today, she has written that playbook. When you start a hard conversation, you will want to be able to say why you'd like to talk. That is Anna Sale. She hosts the WNYC podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, a podcast all about difficult conversations. She is here this episode to talk about her newest book, which is called Let's Talk About Hard Things. When you initiate, start by asking if it's a good time to talk and explain why you want to have this particular conversation. That is Anna reading from her book, which is full of practical tips for hard conversations. Notice their body language or when their answers become short or clipped and what makes them expand further. And this book is also full of stories about difficult chats from people that she's encountered over the years. The whole thing makes a case that in general, we are not having difficult conversations enough. By default, we avoid them. But that just makes things harder. So this episode, Anna's going to tell us how to stop doing that and how to walk into those conversations prepared. And I will tell you a little bit about how I quite often get these conversations wrong myself. But I'm learning. I'm getting better. I promise. All right, let's get to it. Here's Anna Sale. Enjoy. So many times when we are gearing up for conversations that we think are going to be difficult, we are strategizing about how to win. Yes. And not thinking about how to be empathetic. And so I've 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 been this dude so many times in my life where I prepare for a difficult conversation by writing down my talking points and the points I need to make to win. Yeah. And then I have my script to rehearse to make sure I play chess the right way in this chat. And that is entirely the opposite ethos and spirit of just listening. And I think what you're asking for and what I'm trying to be better about right now in my life is not making all of these relationships and conversations transactional, but making them empathetic. Yep. To the best that I can. Yeah, it's like instead of, I mean, I I have the same tendency, Sam. I really like to think that I'm gonna finally, finally win all caps a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever uh -huh. actually had a conversation that I win, you know, but I still try every time. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, when you're like, no, my objective here is to understand, is not to win this battle. Yes. Like that changes yes. the way you participate. Because also, like, think about how it feels when you can feel someone talking to you in a way where they're trying to win. Yeah. That stinks. Yeah. <laughs> it just ain't right. It's not right. Yes. How long do you think it took for you personally to get to the place where you could offer that kind of advice on a difficult conversation? You know, I, I worked on this book for four years, almost, for four complete years. And I think it took me... Um, wow about four years to kind of confirm for myself that what I am saying here is worthy of being on a book page. Um, because mm. I think, you know, this, this, I started writing this book because I thought, huh, like people ask me from hearing the show, they ask me like, how do you do what you do? How do you get people to open up? And I would sort of, um, kind of say what I thought I did, you know, but I had never really paused and reflected on it. I'd never put it to mm. words. It's so much 
um, for me, interviewing has has long been based in intuition and, um, yeah. you know, almost improv. You're like responding in the moment <laughs> to what you're hearing. And and mm-hmm. so the, the practice of saying like, what is this that I'm doing? Any like wise wisdom about how to listen? You know, you look at that and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, I've heard that before. It's important to listen. Oh, yeah, you know. I'll listen, yeah. you know, uh-huh. but actually listening... <laughs> That's really hard. hard. And so I think to yeah. to have some tips, some like very straightforward, like, look for that. Oh, they just answered. Yeah. Instead of like, yes, thank you so much for asking that. Like that's telling you information yeah. about where the rest of the conversation can go. And I like that when you lay it out like that, it, it was a reminder to me that like you can approach these conversations practically and not just emotionally. Mm-hmm. I think for a very long time, when I was entering difficult conversations, they were purely driven by the strongest emotion in my head and heart at that time. So it was just like, blah, 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 you know? And when you stop and say, there are steps to do this right, there's a practice to it and a method to it, you just enter in it more even killed, if that makes sense. So I liked that you made it like this, this can be a step-by-step process. Yeah. I mean, the way I sort of picture it in my head now, it's two tracks that are happening simultaneously in any hard conversation. Maybe like you can picture it like a skier, mm. like one leg is yeah. like what is being said and the other leg is how it's being said. And for anyone who's mm. skied, like when those skis aren't going in the same direction and get crossed, like you're going to fall down and fail. (laughs) So you have to sort of stay committed to keeping them both running in parallel. I like that. And I say this as someone who's never skied in my life, but that made sense. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Coming up, Anna talks about how to have hard conversations with family. Stay with us. A few years ago, a website popped up in Stockton, California, and conspiracy theories started ramping way up. And it's being funded by conservative movement underneath the table. And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, people really believe this. What happens when the local news outlet isn't fact-checking conspiracy theories? Maybe encouraging them. Listen now from NPR's Invisibilia podcast. Before the book, uh, there was your podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, and you divided difficult conversations into three categories for that podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. But in the book, you have five categories of difficult conversations, Death, Sex, Money, Family, and Identity. What prompted the addition of those two new categories, and how different or similar are they to the first three? Well, when I was started working on the book, I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book about talking about hard things. So initially I had like 11 or 12 chapters envisioned. I was just like, there's lots of hard things. <laughs> Everything's hard these days. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, Anna, like let's, let's focus on, on what you really want to say. Um, I felt like family and identity, I wanted to add because um, those are also things that have come up a lot on the show, even though it's not explicitly in the title. Yeah. Family, I feel like um, I wanted to give a special focus on because I think um, family is both something that can be such a challenging thing for us to talk about. And it's also a setting in which we have hard conversations. It's a set of relationships. So I wanted to just explore that in particular. Um, 
And one of the things, you know, a major thesis of that chapter is like, what if in a family conversation, like you start out with the acceptance that part of what makes family conversations hard is there's always going to be this pull between wanting to feel connected and a part of this larger whole and on the other side to be seen as an individual apart from this family Mm -hmm. culture. And I think so yeah. many family, you know, you don't see me, you don't understand me, or like, you know, uh, why don't I feel connected to you? Like, like the, that tension, that's part of what family is because we all come from a place. Uh, we, we, we know mm-hmm. families look a lot of different ways, but all, all of us come from a family of some sort. And then we grow up and grow away. And that's what growing up is. And so if you sort of acknowledge that that tension is not, wrong, that that's actually inherent in family relationships, um, then you can sort of describe what's ha- what are the particulars in, yeah. in the conflict. Yeah. A point that you made that really stuck uh, with the team, you know, this idea that like our idea of what family is supposed to be is honestly a myth. It's mythical. It's made up. It's produced. And a lot of times family, as we experience it, doesn't feel like what our idea of what a family should be. And we have to make peace with that too. Yeah. Like why doesn't my family feel good? Family is supposed to feel good. You know, that can be a real source of sadness and suffering. And, you know, there are a lot of things that happen in families that are not good, that are reasons why you should not Mm -hmm. feel good. Um, The person that I, I talk about in the book in that chapter is a woman who grew up with a mother who has, um, pretty debilitating mental illness and has paranoid delusions and, and has been um, for for the woman I talked to's life, she's had to take care of her mother and she had to accept my mother is never going to be the kind of mother that I want her to be, that I've been trying to talk her into being talking her out of her illness. Mm. And so she had to Mm. then say like, I'm going to create this other community of wise older women who are these maternal relationships I have in my life. And, and that's okay. I have to have these two different kinds of relationships to have to build the family that that I want and need. Yeah. Early in the book, you introduced this idea that I've really been thinking about since I read it in the book. Uh, In our modern world, we have to rely more on conversation and communication. And difficult conversations because you write, quote, we used to have institutions, rituals, and conventions that led us through the uncomfortable patches of life. So we were less reliant on individual communication skills. Explain what you mean and give me an example. Yeah. I mean, certainly there are rituals, conventions, and institutions still in America, but we are living in a time where our trust in institutions has is on the decline, whether you're looking at religious institutions, whether you're looking at media. And our economy has changed such that things that used to be kind of like taken care of in structures, you know, if you look at the example of like pensions versus a like 401k, you know, it used to be the company took care of you. And now it's like, here's this account that we're giving you that you're in charge of, you know? Oh yeah, it's insane. My father, who was old, when he retired, he had two pensions, yeah. two healthy pensions, and they were just there. And then when he died, my mother got them. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, I 
you know, check my 401k every few months and I'm just sad. It's a different world. Yeah. Well, I think that that's really, it speaks to like who's in charge, right? Like it used to be that we had sort of these bigger structures more that we could lean on to be like, okay, that's taken care of for my retirement. And now you, Mm -hmm. Sam, you know, over drinks with your coworker have to be like, how did you do that thing for your 401k? Yeah. So it's like, you know, whether it's good or bad that some of these like institutions and rituals are less sort of pervasive in our life, you know, in a lot of ways, it's created more freedom for us to like build our lives in the ways we want. But it along with that has come the reality that like, you are more on your own. And if you're more on your own, you've got to be the one having the conversations with your friends, with your coworkers, with your family members, you know, um, and certainly this was happening before the pandemic, but like, then the pandemic happened. And then what did you do when someone you loved died? How did you connect to the people who also loved that person? You had to do it with words, you know? Yeah. And and yeah. that requires a commitment to learning how to be more skillful with those words. Exactly. Well, and, and like, you've mentioned this in a few interviews, like, even the idea of like the wedding mm-hmm. it's changed and it, and it, it's it's more on us to figure it out you know it used to be you were in this denomination the church did the wedding this way the preacher did it he he or she had the script and that was it and now when you officiate a wedding you got to go on a scavenger hunt oh. how do i do it how should i do this speech you've done this right yes and i you know it's so funny because whenever i've been asked by friends will you marry us first you're like wow what an awesome honor and then i start preparing the ceremony and i'm like holy moly this is a lot of work how do I do this? <laughs> yeah yes. where do i start and then you're googling like what is a run of show for a wedding you know like that <laughs> is so weird and i'm like i am i am i qualified for this you know but it used to be more that you called up whoever the religious leader was in your life and said like we're getting married on april 15th do the service and they're like okay can you do it and it was their job yeah. to do it and they just knew how to do it exactly Later, Anna on money and how to end a hard conversation. I've heard you say in other interviews about the book that the money chapter was the hardest chapter to write. Why? Oh, because it's like basically um, the charge of that chapter is like everything from how should you argue about like whether to buy a piece of furniture with your partner all the way up to like should we live in a capitalist or communist society? (laughs) You know, (laughs) like it's so small and micro and intimate and also so large. And that's what makes money hard. You're not just talking about what do I have in my bank account right now? You're also talking about, huh, how did it get there? You know, what is it about Mm -hmm. me and my history and about why it's not more and why I have more than others? And how do I feel about that? And um, so you're you're navigating around all this stuff. And also, again, that question of like, am I honorable or not honorable? You know, that comes up with money. So you have to sort of recognize in money conversations that all of these things are happening at the same time. And, and one point I just wanted to make early on in that chapter is like, I reject the binary of like money is the result of your set of personal choices or a result of structures and history. Like it is both like 
all of us make choices about money and all of us, you know, have what we have and don't have what we have because of facts that we had no control over. And if you can just be honest about that in your personal story, starting with yourself and then trying to allow that out a little bit when you're talking to people about money, it's just less pretending. It's more honest. Yes. Yes. One of the themes that you bring up in the money chapter is this idea of radical acceptance. Mm. And I got to say, I ha- I've heard about the idea of radical acceptance, but I've never heard it applied to money conversations because I think so much of the mythology around money in this country is just like, if you just believe you can achieve and to apply radical acceptance to money, that's a different conversation. What led you to have that idea of radical acceptance in the chapter about money? It wasn't my idea. It was something a woman told me who I interviewed. She is so good at talking about this. Her name is Danielle Munoz. And she, when she talks about radical acceptance, it is often with students who are living in this very expensive rental market, trying to figure out how to pay for school, a lot of first-generation college students, and they're struggling. You know, she told me, my office is supposed to deal with students who are in crisis for lots of reasons. I will tell you, it's all rent related right now, you know? So she's really? she's had to learn how to say, what to say to a student who, who can't, who's having trouble making the numbers work because she can't fix yeah. it. She can't fix yeah. it. So the first thing she says is, I'm so glad you're here. This is a systems issue. This is not something that you have done wrong. And then she will say, when she brought up radical acceptance, the way she uses it is this idea of like, we do not like these facts, but these are the facts. And so if that is true, (laughs) you know, she compared it to like when your tire blows out, like you can be so frustrated Mm. and mad that your tire blew out that you're just like, ugh, I'm getting out of my car and walking Mm. away from it. Then your car is going to be stuck on the side of the road. Yes. So you have to say, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. I don't like this. I wish it were different. And I have to figure out how to get the spare on so I can go to where I'm going. And so that is the conversation she has. And and she does it. You know, she has that individual conversation one on one with a student saying, like, how are we going to get you through this semester? How are we going to get you to your degree? You know, sometimes it's about, you know, let's figure out this other loan. Sometimes it's about let's write letters to these Sacramento state donors. Let's figure out your personal situation. And then she spends time going to council meetings, like advocating for more affordable housing. She spends time with, you know, trying to support rapid rehousing programs. So she's doing the systemic work along with the one-on-one radical acceptance work. Yeah, yeah, I like Mm -hmm. that. Which lesson in the book is the hardest for you to follow? Oh, um, there's a line, it's in the identity chapter, but I I have come to think of it as a very useful mantra for any hard conversation. Um, And I heard it from a woman named Karina Montag, who lives out here in the East Bay, and she does a lot of work, um, anti-racism work and restorative justice trainings. And she told me she starts those sessions with groups with the idea that they are gathering to expect and accept a lack of closure. Oh, Oh, yeah, that's hard. Mm. Gives me chills just hearing you say it. Oh, my God. (laughs) We want to fix, you know. We want to be like, 
I am, uh, and I'm going to have this hard conversation. I want the hard thing to be over when I finish this conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's not actually how hard things work in our lives. You know, like Mm. the example of death and grief, you know, you are not going to be able to make someone who is deep in grief feel better about their loss. You're not going to be able to fix that loss. But what you can do is try to use words to be alongside them in that grief to, you know, be alongside them in a way that you can lift that feeling of isolation and stigma. Like that is what we can do mm-hmm. with hard things in each other's lives. Mm-hmm. We cannot fix them, but we can be alongside them. You write this sentence in the book and say that it's a sentence that we might need to be better at accepting and at incorporating into difficult conversations. And that sentence is, what I want has changed. Mm. It's so simple and it's so beautiful, but it's a thing a lot of us are afraid to say. How do you think we should take that sentence into our work around hard conversations? And why do you think it's so hard for us to do it? Oh, that sentence contains so much. You know, if you feel that, yeah. if you feel that, you need to say that to someone. But what that sentence contains is also the affirmation that you get to change. You know? Yeah. Yeah. If you hear that from someone, that is not something that is easy to hear, perhaps. Because it sometimes sounds like rejection. Yeah. If you are having a conversation where someone is telling you, I don't want what you want, you have to figure out how to hear that. Mm -hmm. What I want has changed. I learned it from a woman named Ellen Allen, who was in a marriage uh, with a man and realized Mm -hmm. that was not who she was. And Mm. She left Mm. that marriage and she's now married to a woman who she is madly in love with. And that is where she feels the most whole and where she's supposed to be. But it, but it was still sad to end that first marriage, you know, like two things can be true. It was liberating and wonderful and freeing and also sad and difficult and hard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what I think I like most about that sentence what I want has changed It is saying to all of us, sometimes the most difficult conversation we have to have is with ourselves and talking ourselves through our own change and accepting that before we can verbalize anything to the folks that we love about what we need. Yeah. And another sentence that I find really helpful is, I don't know. (laughs) There's a whole section in the book on I don't know, because while you're doing that work, (laughs) you don't know. Yes. You're you're working it out. I'll tell you one thing I do know. I enjoyed this book, and I enjoyed this chat, and I'm grateful for the goodness that you put out into the world. Sam Sanders, it's such a privilege and honor to talk with you about this in particular. You are also good at talking about hard things. So thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Anna Sale. Her new book is called Let's Talk About Hard Things. It is out right now. And her podcast is called Death, Sex, and Money. All right, listeners, don't forget this Friday we are back with another episode And for that, we want to hear from you sharing the best thing that happened to you all week. To do that, just record yourself and email the file to me at samsanders at npr.org. This episode was produced by Liam McBain. It was edited by Christina Calla and Jordana Hochman. We had engineering help from Patrick Murray, and our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. All right, listeners, till Friday, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders, and we'll talk soon. 